God so loved this world that He gave His only Son. On the cross He died, from the grave He rose to give you life. Has anybody told you? No ear has heard, no eye has seen the wonders of God's love prepared for you. Has anybody told you? Well, today we're going to find our way to a place in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that is, I will call it one of those um, difficult, even unsavory places in the Bible, but necessary for us. And today, the message from the Bible will seem especially out of step with culture today, out of the mainstream for sure of how people think about the issue of sex, because that's what this topic is going to be about today. Preaching on 1 Corinthians 5, as I will today, proves that I actually do believe that you should preach the whole counsel of God. You know, it's easy to cherry pick your favorite spot and go, oh, I like that one. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who read the Bible, you know, there's some places you go, ouch, because God has some word for you of correction. Some underlying truths before I get into this message. One is, I want you to all understand that God has given us this most marvelous gift of sex, and it is to be confined within holy marriage. That was God's and is God's and still is God's plan that that is the rightful place for all sexual expression and love is in the confines of a covenant uh, between a man and a woman in holy marriage. As we all know, sex is very powerful. It's emotionally powerful. It's physically powerful. And if I had more time, I would show you, and maybe we will get there, uh, and other passages in this book. It is also spiritually powerful because it can actually create strongholds that will bind a person and turn them into a slave of their own passions. And so this is a most important topic because we all partake of this drive within us. It is God-given. It is beautiful. It has the power to create life. What else on this planet does that? Human life, precious in God's sight. But it also has the power to destroy life. I don't think there's any counseling sessions that I have ever, as a pastor over these almost 50 years now of pastoring, have presided over that is more heartbreaking and heart-wrenching to me than to sit with someone, usually an a, a, a adolescent sometimes a child, but usually an adolescent and an adult who now begins to unveil what happened to them as a child and how devastating that was to them. It is not anything short of absolute heartbreak to listen to that and to realize somebody had to live through this torment in their early life. 
And so it has the power to create life, but it also has the power to destroy it. And there are, finally, I want to say before I get into this, is I want you to understand because we're all sinners. We're all guilty. And so I want you to understand something, that there is no sin other than the unforgivable sin, which the Bible says is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is unbelief in Jesus. There is no other sin that, the, that God in heaven and the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse us from. So that's the good news. That's the good news because we all need the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansing us from all sin, including sexual sins. So I want to take you back in your mind, in your imagination. Uh, I want to take you back in time to the city of Corinth because we're going to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if we could board some kind of time machine and be transported back at that city, we would find it a strange and striking resemblance to Long Beach, California, and many other major cities of the world. A busy seaport city, uh, a big commercial core, uh, a bustling population of almost one million, uh, a strong governmental presence, almost an oppressive presence, and a thriving, unfortunately, in this ancient city, a thriving trade in sexual immorality. One of the imposing buildings in the ancient city of Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite, a goddess of sex. And each day thousands of people would stream to this ornate pagan temple because within its walls of this, in the ancient world was the worship of sex. And for a price, every form of degrading perversion was offered and was available from over 1,000 sex slaves that were trafficked and abused in that place. The Corinthian culture accepted and found, it, uh, found its way to include this and even to normalize, to try to normalize even the worst and most degrading sexual acts. So that the reputation of the ancient city of Corinth was such that to call someone a Corinthian was to identify them as a sexual pervert. Well, that gives you the history of the city from which this church named the Church at Corinth uh, existed. Now, let me bring you back to the 21st century. We live in modern-day Corinth. America is in the middle of a sexual storm that began in the 1960s with the sexual revolution. We are the largest producer internationally of pornography. Our entertainment business worships and promotes immoral sex and perversion. Many of America's cities are centers for sex trafficking. Unfortunately, the city of Long Beach has long been one of those sex trafficking places where organized gangs enslave thousands of poor boys and girls. The governmental officials in our state make laws that permit excuse, and protect evil while they travel about in their luxurious private planes to private islands to uh, indulge themselves in all kinds of illicit sex, including pedophilia. It's all been documented. 
With the help of some progressive school boards, American woke culture that detests traditional marriage, natural marriage, pushes a perverted sexual agenda on our children, grooming them and ruining their futures. Against the strong protests of parents who now, according to what I hear from the Department of Justice, some parents are considered cultural terrorists. All they want is for their children to be left alone. We're told that we need to be tolerant. In fact, we're told that we're intolerant. By the way, tolerance is a Christian virtue. Do you know what it is? Because it's thrown around a lot. Toleration is what God is with us as sinners. He is patient. If you were God and you saw what was going on on this earth and you didn't like it, you'd go, that's enough of that. And it would be all over. God is a tolerant God. And he is tolerant even with evil. But there's coming a day when his patience will wear out and God will judge all evil. He will bring it to one final cataclysmic end. But we're to be tolerant as Christians, and we are tolerant. But we are uh, lambasted by people who call us intolerant, but they, in fact, are the most intolerant of all. Because anybody that disagrees with them is called a hater. I don't hate anybody. No one. Literally the worst. I don't hate them because God loves them. They have a soul, and that soul is bound for eternity. You need to remember that as you look into the face. I've gone down through prisons. I've looked into the faces of, of convicted murderers, one after another. That's a soul headed for eternity. Never forget that. Every person you meet on this planet. Unfortunately, this problem of um, confusion and disobedience in the area of sex has entered into the church. It's being influenced over and over. Some major denominations in America fear being lab labeled judgmental or narrow-minded or extremists, so they reject biblical morality and natural marriage and affirm all kinds of other things, including homosexuality, transgenderism, and even a, 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 a ordain uh, practicing homosexuals as pastors and bishops. The, the visible church is not without fault. For the visible church in America is littered with the stories of fallen priests and pastors who've used their power and their position to, uh, to, to groom people and to use people. And it's a sad commentary today that men of God and women of God should live a life of holiness before the people of God. And yet we see the fallenness and the brokenness and the disarray within the church. And so even Christian writers who write books now claim to be Christian, spin and contort the Bible passages to justify sexual evil, essentially creating books that are an apologetic for sexual sin. When interviewed, some preachers talk about it 
or nuance sexual sin as if it's not that important or even dangerous to society. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't think they talk to real people. I don't think they ever examine the soul of their own heart. Other preachers just simply avoid talking about this topic. They'd rather talk about something else. By now, you're, some of you are maybe feeling a little uncomfortable about me talking about this topic from the pulpit. For years, the topic of sexual immorality has been avoided by most pulpits, never spoken of in church. I have a question for you. How did that turn out? Some believers think that pastors should confine their teaching and preaching to things like prophecy. I'd like to ask them this question. How many times in a day do you entertain thoughts of prophecy? <laughs> so given the current crisis, I think, church, we need to hear a word from God. Well, unfortunately, the church in ancient Corinth had a major problem a major issue, and it needed to be uncovered. The, 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 the veil had to be torn back, and that's what happens. If you're there, open your Bibles there to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes to this church, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. What is it? For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. You're, like, proud of it. So let's stop right there. This is apparently a case of incest in the church that was well-known. This man was living in sin with his stepmother. Weird. Weird. How sick, but true. It's not clear if this man's father had died or she was divorced from him, but now this was, he was involved with her. This is wrong. Leviticus chapter 18, if you ever want to go to a passage that talks about this issue of sexual morality uh, according to the God's law, Leviticus chapter 18 is one you should go read, and it's very, very clear. You are not to have relationships, sexual relationships, with any family relation, anyone. But this passage is not limited to just... Uh, it, it, a mother-in-law, or it goes to all possible relatives, brothers, sisters, step-relatives, aunts, uncles, grandparents, you name it. God forbids sex with anyone in your household family or your extended family. He forbids it. In fact, he forbids it outside of anything except holy matrimony. Well, as shocking as this sin was to the church, because even in, um, I was talking about that ancient temple in Corinth, um, that was one form of sex they didn't really engage in. He was saying, it's so shameful, not even the, the pagans over here were getting into that. And yet this church was actually, not, they were tolerating it. They were, perhaps they were progressive. Maybe they were liberated. Maybe they said, it, we're, we're the inclusive church. So they're drunk on pride, this church in Corinth. They imagined that God was tolerant of sexual sin. God would condone this. And so they ignored it. They thought, we can escape any consequences. Sort of no-fault sex. 
And to the Corinthian church, the real sin, the real sin, much like many people would say today, is not being inclusive enough. They were proud of it. How shameful. And yet, if you read the Old Testament in uh, ancient Israel, it was ripe for judgment. And you'll read it in Isaiah chapter 5, and one of the things that you'll read there is that morality gets turned on its head in a nation before it is judged by God. It is turned on its head. And usually what God does is he uses other nations to hurt them, to judge them. Huh? 9-11, anybody remember that? Do you, you think that maybe America, for the first time in a long, long time in our history, we actually have some thoughts of, huh, what are those other countries going to do to us? It's, it's a different world. And the world that our children are growing up in is very, very dark. And that's why I believe the gospel needs to be preached today to our youth. Because the gospel is the power of God. It is the only hope of the human race. It is Jesus Christ. Well, let's go back to the scripture here. It says that they actually confronted this sexual sin. And here's how they did it. Uh, Verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? Paul says you should be crying about this thing, not, not being happy and saying, hey, we're the inclusive church. Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa, this is heavy duty. First, the church needed to confront any compliance with sin. And how do you confront sin? Oh, I'm, wow, what a good time that was. No. When you realize that God is a holy God, you confront sin with sorrow. True heart-rending sorrow. That is, it's like cleansing, you guys. Because you're all like me. You've all failed in some way. And so it's like cleansing your heart. It's like getting it right. It's like getting back to online and getting your your life headed towards true north again. When you've been off compass. One of the things that the Bible teaches us, and I've tried to communicate this to you, is that sin is inherently self-destructive. You keep going on in a particular direction of sinfulness, it doesn't make your life better. It destroys what God has created in his image. It ruins what the future that you could have had. It it robs you of the opportunities to live the life, the best life possible, because sin is inherently self-destructive. It is one of the reasons that God hates it. And it's one of the reasons why God, in his great love, decided to send his only son to this earth to pay the price. Because he saw how you and, and how I was so wrecked by sin and so hopelessly captured by it that it would ruin my life and my eternity. And so God, in his great love, sent Jesus. Well... 
Sometimes we like to quote that wonderful verse, and it's true, the wages of sin is? Yeah, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And we like to think of that, well, that's, that's for the people that don't know Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that the wages of sin for you is also death. Not eternal death, but deaths of certain things in your life. You will experience death. The death of your marriage. The death of your peace of mind. The death of your moral life. The death of your integrity. The death of your family relationships. The death of your respect by your children and the people that know you. You'll go through one death after another death after another death. Because one thing about the Bible, it's true. And when it says the wages of sin is death, it means if you keep working on it, that sin, you will pay. Because there is something about sin that's inherently destructive. It's not that God is up there going, bang, you're dead, bang, you're dead. No, it's that sin itself has its own corrupting influence in your life. And it will destroy what God has designed to be beautiful. And so this church had to confront this man. And then the second thing they need to do is they need to separate themselves from this man. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You know, sexual sin is dangerous, not, not just to a person, but to a family. Some of you grew up in a family where there was sexual sin. A mother or a father stepped outside of the marriage or... There was incest and there was sex within the family and it broke people's hearts and ruined their futures. You know what I'm talking about. This is not theory to you. This is an understanding of the dangers. The Bible is speaking truth into your life and you're going, yes, 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 I've seen it. I know this. You know, it's, it's sort of like, sin is sort of like the, the toxic dump that happened in Ohio recently, right? It seeps into everything. That's the problem with it, is once it starts, it, it just kind of corrodes, and it destroys, it disrupts, and it, it, it ruins what is precious. And I would say the most precious thing that, that you have in your family are your children, amen? And now, as a grandpa, my grandchildren. I don't want that to happen to them. I don't want them to have that kind of experience. I don't want them to have their little hearts destroyed, their minds and their bodies defiled. I don't want someone telling them these lies because there are what I'll call mega lies, perverse mega lies in our culture today that are ruining the minds and hearts and eventually will corrode the, the hearts and souls and bodies of our children. The Bible speaks against this and says in the case of someone who practices this kind of evil within the church, you're to put them out of the church. You know, Jesus had a way of doing this. This is a step-by-step. If you want to turn there, it's Matthew 18, verse 15. Here's the process that we're to use. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. There's step one. You go, in, you go privately. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, step two is take somebody else with you that knows the situation and confront this person in love. If he refuses to listen, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. In other words, somebody that's outside the church. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's powerful, isn't it? Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by, for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We use that a lot, don't we? We say, well, there's two or three of us. I guess Jesus is here. No, he's always with you. <laughs> that verse is about church discipline. It's saying when you get together with two or three and there's a situation where you have to confront someone, Jesus says, I'm there with you. You're actually exercising divine authority. You are loosing on earth or binding on earth what is also loosed and bound in heaven. That's serious, sobering business. The business of God. Jesus commanded us to approach sin consistent with the two attitudes of God's character, number one, we're to approach it with an understanding that God is holy, and the other is that God is a God of love. You know, it seems harsh in our day to actually take measures that seem so um, harsh and difficult. But I would, <laughs> some years ago, I was in an elevator, and uh, a mother with her little boy, he looked like he was about five or six, got into the car at the, you know, about floor one. And I could see this kid was probably like I was as a kid, pretty hyperactive, uh, because he immediately went over to the buttons, wanted to tr touch all the buttons. <laughs> Just like a boy. There were 20 floors. <laughs> and she was trying to stop this little boy, and he just wouldn't be stopped. And he started yelling back at his mother. You could tell there was no respect at all. She tried. She looked over at me like I'm embarrassed. So I grabbed, she grabbed his hands. And when she did that, he had, one, he had two things left. He could kick her. And he started kicking her legs hard. This poor woman. And she was so embarrassed. And I thought she had lost the control of her son. That kid no longer respected mom anymore. Her word meant nothing. How tragic. You know, if you don't apply some kind of discipline, a child never learns respect, right? God disciplines us, we know from the Bible. Why? He disciplines us so that we might live a good life, so we might live our best life because he loves us. And all discipline in the church is to be carried out in a way that redeems and recovers people. Well, here we find in verse 4, the church discipline is to be carried out in the name and the power delegated by Jesus. This is an act of the church taking not retribution or punishment, but applying loving discipline to restore a brother or sister. And Jesus said, whatever you do is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's, that's very powerful um, authority that the church has. Now, let's move on. For the church is to consign the unrepentant brother or sister in, to Satan. This is really wild. Look at this, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Ah, wow. This is fascinating. It's frightening. It's sobering. It's unnerving to read such a thing. Um, I'll just say this. Uh, to be delivered over to Satan is a very, very serious matter. Because I can tell you this, Satan is not your friend. He is not your friend. Satan has been working overtime on all of us. He works overtime to confuse us, to compromise us morally, to tempt us, to accuse us past sins, to bind us in certain kinds of ways, to sin, to deceive us. He wants to shipwreck your faith and ruin your life. He, Jesus said that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. He will literally destroy your life. You remember that passage in 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith. See, when you or a, a, a Christian continues an unrepentant sin, he is literally walking into Satan's trap, into the mouth of the roaring lion. Now, some of you know I just came from Africa on a mission, and I also took time to uh, go on a little safari. So I was on this safari, and I was, I was watching lions. Yeah, up close. I watched them stalking their prey. I watched them drag down their prey. I watched them choke out their prey. And while their prey was still quivering and maybe having their last heartbeats, I saw them tear literally their hindquarters apart and start crunching on their bones. Now that's a very brutal, awful, difficult vision to see. Personally, I saw it. Nature and wild nature is not kind. It is brutal. And the Bible, when it speaks about Satan being a roaring lion, he is brutal. He will ruin your life. He will destroy your future. He will try to cut you off from God in every possible way. And he will try to undermine your faith to destroy your life. He longs to do that. He plans to do that to you and to me. But we are to resist him firm in our faith. Amen? Amen. So, when a disobedient believer is under the discipline of the church, they are out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with the church. And one of the things that we need to remember about church, you know, it's, um, again, going back to Africa, is, you know, you know the one that gets picked off? The one that gets separated from the herd. And the weakest, and the sick, and all the rest. And so you need to stay in fellowship in the church. You need to stay in fellowship with one another. You need, we need to hold each other accountable. Because you know what? All of us could slip away. That's the truth. Satan's that crafty. He knows, he's got your number. He knows exactly how to hit your button. And so you need, you need to understand this. You need me, I need you, we need each other. And that's how the church at Corinth was supposed to be. And Paul is teaching us this. Well, 
He goes on to say, deliver over to Satan that he may do what? <laughs> he may uh, destroy the flesh that uh, eventually his, his spirit may be saved. That's a pretty crazy statement. And yet we find this is true. Did you know that the devil can actually afflict people physically? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we saw it in the book of Job, right? Now, Job was a righteous man, and yet God gave Satan permission to afflict him, right, for the purpose uh, that God had to show that Job was not just serving God because of all the nice things God did for me. No, he served him because he's God. Remember that. What a powerful message, especially when you're coming through difficult times. Why do you serve God? Oh, well, I only serve him because he's nice to me. Makes my life easy. No, there are sometimes when trials come, he allows those for your good. To test your soul, what, what's really motivating you? Well, there are examples in Scripture where people were delivered over to Satan and for the destruction of their body. 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus and Alexander were delivered over to Satan for blaspheming Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul said that some believers in the Corinthian church were weak and sick, and some had died because they made mockery of the Lord's table. You never want to do that. So, Paul says, go ahead, you need to um, deliver him over to Satan. To destroy his flesh, to, he needs to have a lesson about this, but his spirit will be saved. Isn't that good news? Yes. Is that good news? Yes. It's really good news. God cares about people, even people that have walked into this world, this dark world, who are believers. And there are some that, I mean, I've counseled people. They step into this world, and it's a mess. It's a mess. All right. So God sets these moral boundaries for us. And why does he do that? It's because sin diseases and afflicts damage on, on you, on the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven's always a metaphor of sin in the Bible. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You are truly. This is your true identity. You are unleavened, meaning you are righteous and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, the church needs to understand that sexual sin, no matter how much you think that you can hide it, it will eventually come out. Am I right? Am I right? Yes. It's true. All you have to do is read your Bible. A very powerful king named David thought, ah, I got this. I can cover my tracks. I got the power to do this. Did it work for him? No. It didn't work for him. And so we know that this is part of what happens when people live in this fake world. It does come out. Sexual sin is often imagined to be a private matter and no one will ever know. That is not true. <laughs> so I got an illustration for you. This is this, it's a true story, but it's really strange in a good way. So I'm a youth pastor in a church. It's my first pastorate. And what do I know, you know, fresh out of school? And I go into this church and uh, I'm the, not the lead pastor 
and I'm learning. And the church is growing like crazy, and all of a sudden it stops, and it just starts to decline. And the lead pastor says, there's something wrong here in this church. He says, and we need to pray. So we started going into the worship center every day, and we got down on our knees, and we started praying, God, show us what's wrong. There's something not right about this church. And you know what? It wasn't but just two months later, it all came rolling out. One of our guys worked for the telephone company. And one day he's up on a pole. He decides back then, I don't know if you can do it now, but back then you could click onto your own line. And so he clicked onto his own home line to hear the chairman of the elder board making a private liaison with his wife. Boom! Be sure your sins will find you out. It happened, rolled right out. And we confronted it, and both parties repented of it, and those marriages were saved. Thank God. But I'm just telling you, you can't keep it private. So why not live in the light? Why not walk in the light? Live in the life of purity. And you, know, you don't ever have to worry about this. Well, God's ultimate purpose for the church is holiness. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We are qualitatively different than the world. We are the new lump that's moral, righteous, holy. The church is no longer bound by sin because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed to pay the penalty for our sins. And by the way, isn't it great that Paul uses the, the celebration of the Passover? What does that mean? It means deliverance from slavery. Isn't it? Isn't that what it was? It was deliverance from slavery. And he's talking about it in this. You get delivered from enslavement to your passions and to the evil and to the darkness and to things that have undermined your life and are destroying you and corrupting you and corroding your heart. You get delivered through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. He's the only one. He's the only one that can do that and forgive you of all of your sins. Well, the church is designed to be a different place. And as he continues to write, you'll see how he says, if you're going to get into the world, you're going to rub shoulders with a lot of, a lot of people that are into this. In fact, they celebrate this evil, but that's not you. And as I stand before you today, I realize that my country and the morality of my country from the time I was a child to where we are today has completely collapsed. It's collapsed. You used to be able to rely on coaches and public school teachers and public servants to have a degree of morality. Not today. You have to watch your back. You've got to watch your kids. You know, I used to walk to school. Blocks and blocks and blocks. I'm just this little kid. You know? Every parent, smart enough, they'll get their kids in the car, take them right to the door, and if need be, walk them in. Why? What's happened to this country? It's moral collapse. And this is a large part of it. This powerful gift of sex has been so corrupted and so messed with people are tortured today 
You know, um, I'm wrapping this thing up. It's a difficult message, but I know you're sitting there in agreement because if you're living in reality, you know I'm speaking the truth. Do you remember that scripture in Romans 7 where Paul, in frustration about his own personal sin, says, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? O wretched man that I am. Do you remember reading? Anybody ever read that? Okay, two or three of you read that. <laughs> Rest of you, read your Bible more. So, so, and then he goes on, he says, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to deliver me? Jesus. But he's, he talks about the body of this death. And I wanted to just, as an illustration, Paul was using a word picture of the body of this death. You know, the Romans were very brutal as a culture, much like our own culture has become so foul and defiled and brutal. You see, that it almost it unravels. Civilization will, will come totally unraveled, and it'll start to be what they taught me in school was survival of the fittest. Ooh, that's a philosophy too, isn't it? That means if, if, you, if you don't destroy me first, I get to kill you and destroy you. That's the world. That's the world. That's ugly. That's uncivilized. That is anti-God, anti-Christ. Well, this word picture... Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The Romans had two different ways of capital punishment. One, and we know, is the cross. Very cruel. Put somebody up on a piece of wood and just hang them there. Let them bleed to death. Took sometimes days. Didn't for Jesus. But the second way was they actually tied somebody to the corpse. <laughs> yeah. And it's terrifying. You're face to face with death. The, the, the Roman poet Virgil uh, described this in a poem. Let me read it for you. He says, The living and the dead at his command, meaning like a, a Roman centurion, a soldier, the living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand, till choked with stench in loathing embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. How's that for description? Here's the good news. Who will deliver you from the stench of death and sin? It is Jesus Christ. Amen. He is your only hope. He is my only hope. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will empower you to live a holy life. He will give you a sense of your own purpose. He will help you understand that you don't just live for now, but you live for what is yet to come, for all eternity. He will literally change and transform your life in such a powerful way. We all need to live a life of holiness. Amen? Amen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 
says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we commit ourselves to fresh holiness and transparency every day, we have fellowship with one another. We need to stay connected to one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from sin. We need to remember that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us of that. And some of you, Satan is whispering in your ear right now, no, you can't be forgiven of that. I say, that's a lie. According to scripture, you can be forgiven. You can be restored. This could be a thing that's under the, under the blood of Jesus Christ, left at the foot of the cross, and you go free. Christ, our Passover. I've been set free to live a godly life, not a stinking, rotten life of darkness. If we say we have no sin, it goes on, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We need to understand that we're not yet perfect in holiness. We've got to continue to fight this good fight, confessing all our sins to God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to resist temptation and separate ourselves from the sins of this present world. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. This is and has been a most important message for all of us because there's not one person in the room that is not affected by this. I know that. I've been around long enough, and I know me, and I know you. But more than that, I know the truth. And the truth will set you free. free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous, difficult, sobering, important critical passage. Lord, now as we let it sink down into the cracks of our own souls and, and dispel the darkness, Lord, we just pray you turn on the light in every place that we might live a life of true, true holiness and wholeness, which is what you want for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.